You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have Joe Bhakti, uh, founder and CEO of uh, QuantGene, Q-U-A-N-T-G-E-N-E. So, uh, Joe, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, thanks, Rich, for having me. Uh, happy New Year and uh, uh, very happy to be here. Yeah. So what is, what's the premise of QuantGene? So QuantGene is a uh, biotechnology company here in Santa Monica, and we combine deep genomics with AI to detect the 10, <clears throat> the 10 deadliest cancers at early stages in the blood. That's our mission. And uh, yeah, happy to talk a little bit more about how we uh, are going about that mission. So you, again, you're looking in the blood for early markers of cancer? Yes, so we are founded on, uh, we are sitting on top of a big technology wave uh, that is very new and that enables us to, uh, for the first time, look into circulating tumor DNA. So that is cell-free DNA in the blood. um, And that DNA that circulates in the blood um, carries mutations on it. And we are able to detect these mutations with a completely new level of precision. And that allows us to pick up individual molecules of tumor DNA um, far before uh, cancer is normally detectable um, because we can identify individual molecules. Hmm. Um, in the blood, I would think there's, I mean, absolutely tons of different things, different constituents, uh, you know, exosomes, uh, you know, different cells. I mean, how do you find the signal for a, a tumor out of all of that? Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's exactly the, the value proposition here that, you know, conventional medicine and standard of care They use biomarkers like proteins or uh, other markers, and the level of precision is very limited uh, precisely because of the reasons you mentioned. You have trillions of of molecules and things in a blood sample in in one tube of blood, Um, and by focusing, number one, on DNA, uh, which is a very unique type of biomarker, and then within DNA, on somatic mutations that are related to cancer, Uh, And then combining that with a new capability that is very software-driven, but also chemistry and laboratory processes to actually sequence and investigate these DNA molecules one by one, um, we were able to push that uh, limit of detection and also the accuracy by uh, a huge amount. So what's 
and I've heard even the processing of blood, if you do like ultra centrifugation, I mean, things can, I guess, be torn apart and things can be combined. And I mean, it, it, is the method in which you process the blood, you know, super important so that you preserve what you're looking for and it doesn't, the signal doesn't get obfuscated? Yeah, the thing we innovated is a very holistic approach to the entire processing um, system. So you have to take care of the sample from the very beginning. So how you draw the blood, in what kind of blood tubes. <clears throat> so we use track tubes, uh, specific. These are special tubes that stabilize white blood cells, prevent other cells from lysing and shedding their DNA into the blood because it would create more noise. It also stabilizes the actual circulating DNA. Um, by knocking out DNA, it's the enzyme that eats that up. Otherwise, you would lose a lot of DNA all the time while you transport the blood. Um, and then from there, you have to optimize how you extract um, the DNA from plasma. Um, that is a very important um, part of our innovation because conventional methods just lose too much of the actual template. So uh, in, the, in the past, these things were not optimized for single molecule precision. So if you lose 90%, no one cares normally, but we care a lot. So you have to optimize the way you extract the DNA from plasma and uh, clean it up. And then, of course, the complicated stuff starts where you go into sequencing. And in sequencing, that's where really most of the magic happens that we invented. Because uh, normally, if you do uh, next generation sequencing, you can't even sequence at that level of precision. So it's like magnitudes less accurate what you normally get. There's a lot of noise in there when you actually look at the individual um, DNA sequences. And so we developed the entire system, software system, bioinformatics, machine learning, but also chemistry to make sure that you investigate every single copy uh, when you sequence the blood sample and to make sure that you absolutely minimize sequencing errors and noise and also chemistry errors. Uh, so you can be sure that a mutation you find is actually a mutation and not an error. And so all of that adds up to a pretty complicated technology stack. Um, but it's a stack that moves the needle dramatically on the clinical side for patients. Well, I've, I've heard that tumors are very heterogeneous. So how do you even know what to look for? How do you know which mutations will tell you, yes, that's a tumor, and it's a tumor in the liver, for instance? Yeah, that's also a, a brilliant point. That was actually the starting point for Quanchi that we solved the mathematic problem um, that wasn't solved before. <clears throat> and that's exactly that problem. If you have a full human DNA, uh, you have 3.3 billion base pairs, uh, so these little letters on the DNA. And of course, you can't, look you, you can't look at all of them and then figure out what's going on. You need to know what you want to look at. And the challenge here is that when quantine was started in 2015, uh, no one, you know, no scientist, no uh, oncologist could tell you what you have to look for in order to make sure you capture all variations of, of all top 10 tumors because no one knew. And if you don't know that, you can't develop this technology. And so what we did, what we did is we aggregated the world's largest data set from sequenced tumor tissue, so from biopsies from a lot of patients that was publicly available, but we had to aggregate this entire data set and then basically uh, create a machine learning project uh, with the objective to answer a very specific question and that is, what is the smallest number of mutations or locations you have to look at within this tens of thousands of cancer patients? Um, the smallest number of locations you have to look at, um, that still allows you to find any variant of tumors. So you can imagine it as a giant table with 100 million rows and you know, 40,000 columns for the patients. 
and each row reflects a mutation that is found in the patient on uh, 100 million different locations of the DNA. And in this giant matrix, the question is, what cells or rows do you have to investigate if you want to make sure that each of the columns of the patients has at least one of these mutations um, uh, in, in their tumor? And then you can minimize the amount, and that gives you basically a, a minimized matrix of stuff you have to look at while still ensuring that you find any variant. So that was kind of a big breakthrough because that hasn't been done. Well, what's really cool is that you might be able to find new variants of specific cancer types that you know haven't been seen, um, and then for the existing variants, are you able to characterize down to you know, how specific can you get once when you find someone, you know, an organism has a cancer? Can you tell like very, very specifically all the aspects of that cancer, all the mutations, all the the, the degree of heterogeneity? Yeah, we can't. Um, well, we can do a lot of things that weren't possible before, but of course, we can't do everything. We look at a large number of genes, 281 genes, but also uh, tens of thousands of locations. Um, that we sequence. So the data we generate is completely new in oncology because we can now look at a blood sample and get a systemic reflection of uh, the tumor status of a patient, which means it's not just cutting out a little piece of the tumor um, where you run into all these tumor heterogeneity problems. You know, you cut out, you know, on the lower right of the tumor, but on the upper left, you have a totally different mutational profile. In the blood, the advantage is you have a systemic insight. You see basically all kinds of things that stem from any kind of tumor, including metastasis. And uh, so we can investigate a pretty broad set of locations and get a systemic picture of the, of the cancer in the blood, um, which is very important for pharma and um, chemotherapy and immunotherapies because we can tell you what the true reflection of the tumor actually is mutational in mutational terms, not just a little well, if, tumor. If, if I envision the tumor as a, just a ball of cells and it's, I don't know, 50 cells thick or 20 cells thick, are you getting an accurate picture of the whole tumor, the inside and outside, you think? Like is only the outside layer shedding cells and or exosomes into the blood and that's what you're seeing? Or can you see cross-sectionally, you know, exactly what's going on in the entire tumor? You have to think about, like, in terms of quantity, uh, an early-stage tumor has roughly 200 million cells. Um, that's a stage one or earlier tumor, um, or let's say a stage one. So you get a lot of cells, and once this thing actually becomes visible on an imaging uh, device, it's, it's close to a billion cells. So it is a pretty big thing in terms of actual cell count. In terms of size, it's very small. And you can imagine... The power of cell-free DNA lies in the fact that this tumor normally has very unstable cells because cancer, by definition, is highly mutated, so the cells are not in very good condition. They just replicate uncontrollably, but they also die un uncontrollably. And dying cells, part of what makes a tumor so dangerous is that it is kind of a functional tissue, which means it can clean out anything that happens inside the tumor pretty effectively, otherwise it would kill itself. So that means it doesn't matter where the cells die in the tumor, they get carried out by the lymph system or the blood system uh, pretty effectively, uh, because if not, the tumor would just you know, die, uh, can't survive. And that means in theory, you get a pretty good representation of 
of the entire tumor in the blood. Um, and uh, in the beginning, some made the argument that, you know, there's just not enough DNA in the blood uh, because if you have a stage one tumor, you wouldn't have enough DNA in a single blood sample. But we ran the math on that. And we were very clear in the beginning that this is actually not true. And given the fact that you have 200 million plus cells and you have a pretty high turnover, so you have millions of cells dying every day um, and they get transported out by the blood. So um, you get a good systemic insight, um, but that's only one aspect of what we are doing. That's actually what the industry, our industry, the liquid biopsy industry is focusing on. It's about profiling cancers. And what Quanchine does is we are doing that too, of course, because we have the most advanced tech, so it's, it's pretty easy for us to do that. But the real clinical value doesn't lie in profiling, it lies in early detection, um, which is a different objective, right? That's more important to detect something no one else detected yet. You have a healthy, seemingly healthy patient. How can you take a blood sample and then tell the patient very early on before anything is visible um, that there's a tumor developing? Um, and these are two very different objectives, profiling versus detection, because you have to optimize for different things. Well, even within detection, what does the profiling look like? So if you're able to capture so much more often early stage cancers, does the profiling look different now versus when they're seen and they're at the billion cell stage? Exactly. Maybe there'll be some learning in there that could be used to capitalize on it in its early stage and really kick its ass. You know? Exactly. I think that's a very good point. And, and profile, I mean, there's a different type of profiling that is very important in early detection. And that profiling is more, can we tell you what tissue of origin that cancer has? So if you find something, you want to know, is that lung cancer or is it breast cancer or is it pancreatic cancer? Because you have to find it then in downstream diagnostics. That's a very complex, difficult problem. But thanks to the very broad insight into the mutational profile, you know, the more patients we process, the, the better we become in, in, in determining what cancer it actually is just based on the blood sample. Um, your technology could be used uh, to sample someone periodically. And then if they're going through, let's say, chemo, you can look at what's coming out in the blood through that process. And you might be able to predict more accurately, are they truly in remission or not? And how long the remission will last? Is it durable? You know, those kinds of things. So there's a lot, I'm sure, that you can do even beyond this this early detection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is a, is a huge uh, paradigm shift in oncology because you're moving from you know, a handful of data points that you normally have to billions. So we get 6 billion data points out of one sample um, and then process them. And that allows on an AI machine learning level, uh, in theory, to become much more predictive um, across the board for outcomes, treatment, recommendations, and uh, all kinds of things that truly impact patients. So um, what, what kind of nuance are you seeing in, in looking at the data that you're getting? I mean, like how many, you know, ballpark, like how many sets of data have you, have you looked at or have you put into the, your, your algorithms to chew through and, you know, what interesting correlations are coming out that you didn't know about before that you can disclose? So we are now getting close to a thousand samples that we processed in a large clinical trial. Um, we have over 5,000 patients collected. So it always lags a little bit, the processing, because we are still we actually preparing a commercial launch in 2020. And so we are having a lot of things to do to bring this actually to patients. And um, I mean, the, the exciting thing is that these data sets are so enormous 
that there's basically no end to what we see. To give you an example, I mean, we, we basically just decided to build an entire unit that just is in charge of investigating the data sets and generating all kinds of insights. It's an enormous treasure trove um, that, you know, where we can basically look at millions and millions of interesting uh, data points um, and investigate, for example, KRAS occurrence, which is a specific oncogene, uh, and how that changes over stages, how it changes between cancers. Um, and the interesting thing here is, of course, there's tons of publications out there that investigated these questions, but when you look at the change in resolution um, that we get, it's truly a paradigm shift. Like before people <clears throat> did a little sequencing, right, and they could detect something that was had a 50% prevalence in the tumor or something, uh, so half of the tumor carried that uh, specific mutation. And we are now at a single molecule precision level. So we can tell you one in 2,000 copies, actually, uh, copies of DNA has that mutation. And that just opens up an enormous insight. So, for example, we see that a lot of uh, cancer patients have far more mutations at lower frequencies than uh, was previously known. So in oncology or in medicine in general, you still think in terms of does this patient have that mutation? So are you EGFR positive? Are you KRAS positive or something like that? And what we see is nearly all patients are positive across the board, depending on the frequency we are talking about. So we basically introduce an entirely new dimension. And the dimension is the quanti quantifi uh, a quantification of the mutant allele frequency. So we don't tell you if you're KRAS positive. We tell you you have a 0.1% uh, rate of KRAS and you have a 0.42% rate of BREF. And that is truly you know, transformative because it's a whole new way of looking at things. And what that shows is that tumors and patients have way more mutations than you would normally see, um, but at very low allele frequencies. And that explains, for example, why so many um, patients, unfortunately, um, get a recurrence. Right? They, they, they are kind of cured by chemo or by their treatment, and then um, right, nothing happens. And then after three years, the cancer comes back. And often that cancer has a different mutational profile. Now, what we see, we already see that profile in the very beginning. And we can already see there are other mutations present, but at far lower frequencies. And so if Well, that tells me, um, yeah, if you, if you just use the Pareto principle and you stacked up the highest occurring frequencies, most to least, and then let's say in your chemo regimen, you made sure to attack the, you know, the three or five most predominant, uh, you know, vulnerable mutations, you'd probably have a much higher success rate in a much longer um, period between it coming back or coming back at all. Yeah, that's true. But it's also, in a way, it's a bad idea, even though it's being deployed all over the place in standard of care. Because if you attack only a part of the tumor, all you're doing is you're freeing up space for the other part. And that misconception now becomes very clear. So, uh, and you can't even, I mean, the pharma companies don't like that too much because the entire precision medicine paradigm is based on the idea that you can investigate patients. And the ones that are, let's say, EGFR positive, they qualify for a certain treatment regime. And of course, it's not great to actually get the insight that they are, you know, that 20% of the tumor is not EGFR positive. So, which means your regime will not work on that tumor, on that part of the tumor, which means you can shrink the tumor and you can look like someone is in remission, 
but then it comes back because the tumor was actually heterogeneous. Well, maybe you treat the tumor in a backwards way. Maybe for a particular type of tumor, the, the common scheme is to use like chemo agent A and then B if it comes back and then C if that doesn't work. Maybe, I don't know, you do C first, then B, then A. I guess maybe it, it gives you at least a chance to try different therapies and different combinations and different times and you know, give a more complete therapy, a more diverse one that really knocks it down to the point where it can't come back. Yeah, but I, I always compared, I mean, the, the key here is to have precision diagnostics tools like uh, uh, DeepGen, our tool, um, to actually know that instead of just waiting and then have a, another big tumor in front of you. It's better to see it right away, uh, the entire heterogeneity of the tumor, and then take new actions that wipe it out all at once. I think that is yeah. medically the, the way you want to go. But in order to do that, you need tools that are precise enough to actually tell you the whole story. Have you done time series or time lapse, you know, long, semi short longitudinal looks at, at a tumor as it progresses to see the, uh, you know, the relative expressions of its, of its uh, mutations changing over time? Yeah, we will have some very exciting data coming out where we de, uh, did a pre and post operative uh, liquid biopsy um, on gastric cancer, but also colorectal cancer. And uh, that's going to be very interesting because you can see how uh, the presence of the tumor and also the mutational load and the profile changes after surgery. So I think that will be very interesting. And then over time, of course, we're going to collect more, uh, more data on, on longitudinal um, time series for people who get treatment. And uh, I think the most exciting thing for me is always early detection. So the question is, uh, so our focus is always more pre-diagnosis because that's where you can save the most lives, um, by far the most lives. And um, that's a totally new field uh, that's not very well established. Um, I mean, screening exists for some cancers, but for the vast majority, there's no screening. And um, the, there are lots of challenges. If we find something in the blood in a non-diagnosed patient, you have to get to a diagnosis somehow. And that can be extremely tricky if it's an early stage tumor, maybe too small to see, and the tissue of origin is unclear. And so you need to develop time series approaches where you, you know, maybe you can't find anything. So you have to investigate that patient again in six months. Um, or you basically provide a, a, a net, a diagnostics net that is purely blood-based and non-invasive um, for patients so they can actually get that test every six months and make sure that everything's in range. If something gets out of range, um, the blood test is actually often the best way to make sure you're tracking that and you're starting more invasive procedures for diagnostics reasons only when it's worth doing so, uh, Means uh, meaning when you can actually find something. Yeah, I just think it's going to be super important, not just for you to, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but early stage, you know, prediction diagnosis is great, but the profiling work that you're going to be able to do longitudinally is going to be like incredibly important. You know, it seems to be commonplace that, yeah, the earlier you detect cancer, the more likely it is you can eradicate it. But why? What is it? Is it because of the mixture of mutations is not yet fully developed? And so it's easier to, to attack the cancer with, you know, one method or two methods. Like, you know, what's the reasoning behind why it's easier earlier on? Yes, you're absolutely, 
You're absolutely right. That's something it's often overlooked because in conventional medicine, everything is still very uh, a little stone agey. So if you do early detection, you're just not in the business of treatment. And uh, data science is also something that's very underdeveloped. And you see that in oncology all the time, how data is being used. It's very you know low resolution. And here you have a tool that's basically doing early detection, but also providing you with tremendous genomics insight that then will become very predictive for outcomes and also treatments. Well, you know, what's interesting too, is there a way to see when you just have a primary tumor or when there's now a metastasis, is there something in the data that will show you, ooh, now we see this and that shows us that it has metastasized and set up another niche? You know, is it, what, it, what is the expression of the mutations? How does it change? Do new ones appear? You know, do the uh, relative frequencies change? Are there other markers of that? Yeah, we, are, we definitely see differences here. Right now, we have mostly cross-sectional data. So we look at basically stage four patients and compare them to stage two patients, for example. Uh, the longitudinal data is, it takes much longer to accumulate, of course. Um, and not most stage two patients, you know, thankfully don't evolve into stage four patients. Um, but we already see cross-sectionally just comparing these cohorts that the profiles look very different, which is interesting. Um, can you can you say how, you know, without, you know, revealing any proprietary info? Well, what you normally see, of course, the mutation load is higher, right? That's a no-brainer, but that's pretty obvious, for st- especially stage 4 metastatic cancer. You just find way higher frequencies of, of key mutations, but you also see a broader mutational range. So that's not too surprising. Um, I think what the interesting part is, and that's what we are working on right now, is, is deeper insights into these mutational patterns. Can we find something that tells us more than just, oh, there's more um, and there's a broader set of mutations? Um, because if you, the, the question, the interesting question is more, if you find an early stage tumor, or let's say something that looks like an early stage tumor, can you tell if it's metastasized or not? So... It's always easy to compare stage four to stage two, but it's interesting to see two tumors that have similar elevation levels, um, but a different profile, and if that profile codes for metastasis. Um, And that is something we are still looking into. Uh, These are enormous data sets, so it always takes a while. Um, For me, it's more a strategic consideration. If If you develop something that is so broad and deep in terms of data points, the probability that you find patterns that code for something is just far higher if you if you pick the right signals. Um, so that's kind of our strategy. Um, but there's that's the question we... Uh, so the only thing I could tell you is a clear differentiation between later stage and early stage in terms of higher levels of elevation and broader and more mutations. Um, not all of them highly elevated, by the way. So some of them might be you know younger and less prevalent. Um, yeah, and, and the question is at the same elevation level, if you actually find them okay. some kind of thing that codes for metastasis, I can't tell you yet, but I think we'll know more soon. Okay, and then um, what uh, does there seem to be an end to the mutational range of you know any given cancer? You said you're able to see a lot of mutations that maybe other people wouldn't see, but does it appear to slow down and come to a halt and that's all it's got? Or does it just seem to be an endless source of variation? I mean, to us, it actually, uh, it doesn't look like it's slowing down too much. I mean, we see it's kind of going on and on. And uh, first, we had to like wrap our heads around that. 
because it's an easier narrative to say, oh, there's a set number of mutations that can happen and once you max out, you're done. Um, but in a way, when you think about the mechanics of cancer, it's not too surprising that we see it's more like a, an ongoing thing where you need to see an expansion, an ongoing expansion. Um, because one of the key traits of cancer is that you knock out the genes, the tumor suppressor genes, that remove mutations or prevent mutations or kill the cell when it mutates too much. So by knocking them out, the cancer can freely mutate. And you see a lot of mutations occurring that probably are not even causing cancer, but are side effects. You know, once you remove these repair mechanisms, you just are a little unhinged in terms of mutations. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess certain ones that appear to be successful, it seems like evolution on fast forward is what it seems like. You know, there's certain mutations that uh, are beneficial and that's what's sustaining the cancer and causing it to spread. And then it's trying or, you know, all these other combinations are coming out. You know, all these other mutations are happening, successful or not, you know, uh, but they're happening. And they just seem to be never ending is what you're saying. Yes, and it kind of makes sense. You have certain drive, you have certain required mutations, right? You need to have some RAS pathway mutations in most cases that tell the cell to uh, multiply uh, uncontrollably. Uh, I think that's a precondition. And another precondition is you have to knock out p53 or p16 genes, like genes that control for uh, that induce apoptosis, like suicide of the cell. If something goes wrong, you have to get rid of them too. And then there are a range of other oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes. So once you have that in place, then you have a tumor. And then from there, I think there's no end to the mutations because then you, this thing will mutate pretty widely. I would argue there's only a certain set of genes you can't mutate because it would actually kill the cell. So I, I would say there is, in, a, in theory, there's an end to the mutations. You can't mutate genes that the cell needs to survive. Otherwise, the cancer would die. Um, but at the same time, uh, once it's unhinged, it's very likely this stuff mutates pretty uncontrollably and the cells that can't survive, they just simply die and then we, we find them in the blood. Um, so I think then it becomes a very evolutionary thing where you constantly mutate pretty widely, but the cells that can't survive simply die. So in the end, the cancer will sustain cells that, uh, pre that avoid certain mutations. But that doesn't mean they can't mutate in, across tens of millions of other locations that are not, not important. And are you, I'm sure you're correlating the liquid biopsy with a, a regular biopsy of the actual tumor itself, right? Because what if you have survivorship bias or non-survivorship bias in what's coming out in the blood? And that's not really reflective of what the tumor is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. Like in some cases we have tissue, in some cases we don't. Um, but... It's an interesting question because the tissue is always considered to be the holy grail, like the truth, the ground truth, which is simply not true because the tissue is pretty imperfect. So, you know, what happens right now in medicine is that liquid biopsies become the second standard over time, where you say, well, it's just two perspectives, right? So a, a solid a tissue biopsy gives you a certain type of insight and the blood gives you a different angle on the truth. Um, because this whole thing started with using tissue as ground truth and then saying, oh, can you match the tissue? And we see often, well, yeah, we can match it to some extent, but we also see other stuff you don't see in the tissue. Right. It's a hard problem. Well, yeah. um, what do you think is going to be possible for you, you know, in the next, uh, I don't know, three, five, maybe as much as 10 years? What, what kind of breakthroughs you, would you love to have happen? I mean, the biggest breakthrough is going to happen this year, uh, and that is that we actually launch an early detection product. 
And the early detection product is really, it's a simple blood test done once a year, capable of uh, or guiding physicians in the detection of cancer. So it's a physician-centric product, but patients can buy it and then the physician orders it. Um, that is the absolutely crucial point in the whole liquid biopsy story. Because if you can do early detection, you have a far greater number of patients who need it because everyone needs it over 50. Um, and that creates a totally, you know, a much larger funnel of patients that actually get that. And that creates much larger data sets that get, give you much deeper insights and create much more statistically sound studies. Um, and then you basically capture the entire funnel. Like you can capture the entire population and then see downstream what happens, who develops actually cancer, who's detected, and how these cancers evolve. And you own the entire data flow and set from the outset on, uh, which is extremely important for, you know, to, to gain full scientific and clinical insight. So I think that's the decisive point, actually, this year. How many different cancers will you be able to test for? We'll probably start with the top 10, um, which means, you know, you can go down the top 10, lung cancer, breast cancer, colorectal, pancreatic, liver, stomach. Uh, leukemia, melanoma, lymphoma, uh, prostate, uh, bladder. I think there was 10. Um, we have 15 in the works, but the top 10 are, are the, the important ones. Um, so it's really a new thing because so far you, I mean, as you probably know, the screening procedures are really focused on breast and colorectal cancer. The rest is not really covered. Uh, lung only for high-risk uh, smokers. Um, and that puts everyone at risk, right? Because you don't know what's going on and no one is even looking. So having a top 10 blood test could be very transformative. Yeah, no, true. Well, excellent. Well, Joe, you know, I, I feel like I grilled you pretty hard, but uh, you gave some great <laughs> answers and uh, thank you. Thank you for coming. And what's the best way for people to find out more and to, you know, keep tabs on when your initial test is coming out so they can you know, ask their doctor for it if they want to. Yeah, we have, uh, well, if you're just interested in the company and the tech, it's quantgene.com, uh, Q-U-A-N-T-G-E-N-E.com. And uh, for the actual test, uh, the test will be called Serenity. Um, and the website is serenityiscoming.com. Um, and that's where we prepare the launch. We'll be regional at first in California, here with some of the leading cancer centers. Um, and then we will roll it out across uh, the nation, and then probably in parallel Switzerland and Germany. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Joe, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rich. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. 
Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.